One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. Well, I think we have to deal with, first of all, uh, the... Um, I guess we should probably say, as we're recording this, it's still breaking. Um, Ken Livingston is still on TV, so by the time we get out of the studio, who knows what he will have said. We're joined by our acting staggers editor, Henry Zeffman, um, to talk about anti-Semitism and Labour and the left more generally. Okay, so for, for those people who have kind of been in a bunker, Henry, let's do the timeline. Where does it... It begins on Tuesday... Tuesday at... Um... Hang on, you're not Henry. Well, no, no, no. So it, it, begin, it begins on Monday afternoon, which is, yeah. I think, when the Guido Fawkes website drew attention to a series of anti-Semitic posts that Naz Shah, the well, relatively newly elected MP for Bradford West, had shared uh, before she became an MP, but not long before she became an MP. We're talking 2014 here. So people uh, get very kind of... Yeah, well, as we will discover later on, people mm-hmm. have disagreements about what is and what isn't anti-semitic what did she what what were the kind of things that she was she's posting articles uh she's posting articles and memes uh but also typed some of her own comments herself so for example the one which has received the most coverage or the, the i think the initial one that guido uncovered uh was that she had shared a meme uh calling for the transportation and that's a quote and think of all the connotations that that word has for jews uh of uh, Israel to the United States of America. Uh, she shared that with a, uh, you know, adding her own comment, saying something like, ha ha ha, good idea. She described that um, as a solution. Which she described it as a solution, of really course, which is another word. word that uh, you which probably wouldn't use. You probably wouldn't. Um, and uh, then in the comments, I think it was on that one, but perhaps on one of her I other know, posts of a similar poll. nature. It was a poll about, it on like, you know, you know, those silly polls and the mirror or the telegraph does on the bottom of its articles about you know is this action in gaza right she urged her followers her twitter her facebook friends and saying come on the jews are rallying mm. so Stephen, john mcdonald whose pps she was at the start of the week seems to have acted quite swiftly right I she mean, seems to have been relieved of that post very quickly so initially that, labor had control of the story well that's the thing that i kind of keep coming back to is that at one thirty on Tuesday, which I think was uh, to let our listeners peer behind the curtain when we first recorded our segment on this, uh, Labour appeared to be in control of the story. They had uh, qu- quite rightly fired her. My understanding is that uh, it was very much a thing where John McGowan was like, yeah, you, you need to go. It was not one of those, oh, I wonder where we go from here. It was a very quick, crazy, yeah, it was five hours from the initial offence to the... And then... Then there seems to have been a draft of a resignation statement, which, which Jim Morton at BuzzFeed got hold of. Initially, he was reporting that that had been sort of not censored, but certainly edited by the leader's office. It now appears that that was a, a, an early draft. That was, a Henry, that was a quite a 
full-hearted apology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's unclear why that draft didn't end up being delivered. Uh, But that draft was introspective, uh, not just on Naz Shah's part, but Naz Shah being introspective about where anti-Semitism on the left and in elements of the Muslim community uh, has has come from. Uh, It showed a willingness to engage. I mean, in fact, by the way, it's worth saying, and I'd stop short of saying that Naz Shah comes out well from this, except in relative terms, uh, because, you know, she has admitted to being an anti-Semite. Uh, but uh, she has shown a willingness to go on a journey and uh, accuse herself of certain elements of her ignorance. And uh, it was noticeable that the Bradford Synagogue, which is very small and was actually uh, saved from being shut a couple of years ago by, by, uh, by the Muslim campaign. community yeah. in Bradford. Uh, and they said, you know, she's, she's been great to us since she became an MP. So I think, it, I think she was probably already on that journey, to her credit. Uh, but uh, for whatever reason, that maybe. apology uh, wasn't published. The apology that was published was a pretty banal. It was more along the sorry uh, if I've caused sorry any if offense. I've caused any offense. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then the statement from Jeremy with the kind of the formulation of words which he he he, he cannot bring himself to say I condemn anti-Semitism without immediately adding the words and racism i mean so you know obviously you know i i have a fairly obvious personal stake in racism being bad but no one thinks that labor has an endemic problem like you know going well past corbyn's election although you know that there have definitely been an acceleration of that since the 12th of september no one thinks there is an endemic problem of uh that type of of racism in the labor party that is just not a, a a whereas there are plenty of Jewish left-wingers who feel deeply uncomfortable, including people on what you would describe as the far left, you know, who feel uncomfortable with, um, with Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and the direction of the Labour Party uh, and kind of the, the nascent uh, anti-Semitism, which has been in, yeah, for, a, for a long time. But what I think we, what we need to then talk to do is, is move on to the kind of cluster whatever, I can't, but uh, afterwards. The cluster fudge? The cluster fudge, there we go, as if we're one of those movies you get on a plane. Um, To say that, so Rupa Haku is the uh, MP for Ealing, Mm -hmm. went on the Today programme after Naz Shah said, I'm really sorry for being anti-Semitic and went, it wasn't anti-Semitic. I had to listen to that interview about 10 times to make sure it wasn't a satire written by Rupert Huck's brother-in-law, Charlie Brooker. I thought it was the most astonishingly repellent thing that I've heard a Labour MP say since September the 12th. And that goes some distance. Uh, I mean, really. Rupert Huck has spent the previous day watching a colleague say, I am sorry for saying things that were anti-Semitic. She has watched that and she's thought, whew, that's not anti-Semitic. What a remarkable uh, pathology has taken grip of elements of the left. And Rupert Huck is not on the left of the Labour Party, right? So it shows you how deep that pathology has burrowed, that she can literally watch an anti-Semite profess to being an anti-Semite and say, hmm, that's not anti-Semitism. And the ludicrous excuse she offered for that, which was that she likened it on the Today programme to a photo that she once shared accidentally on Twitter of Boris Johnson suspended on a zip wire. Uh, that's not just a denial of anti-Semitism. It is a 
a blithe refusal to engage with the seriousness of the problem. It's not really like there's been a centuries-long campaign of persecution of Boris Johnson on a zip wire. Can't no, and, and not, not even Marina Wheeler would admit that there's been a centuries-long campaign of prosecution against Boris Johnson. Um, you say that was one of the most worrying things that you've heard for mm. some time. Enter stage left, Livingston Ken. Oh, yeah. God. But the thing is, is that I, like, Ken Livingston, this is why it's more worrying. This is why I uh, struggle to know how, with the honourable and very decent exception of Sadiq Khan, Labour is ever, ever, ever going to win any number of votes from Jews uh, for the rest of, of my lifetime. I mean that. Um, because we knew about Ken Livingston, right? Uh, Ken Livingston is on the left of the Labour Party, a part of the Labour Party, which we already knew had an anti-Semitism problem before Jeremy Corbyn turned up. Ken Livingston was suspended as mayor for making anti-Semitic comments to a Jewish journalist, right? This isn't a shock. This is when he can go on to a concentration yeah, camp guard. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, it's... Uh, but then said that he didn't know that the guy was Jewish. I think. Yeah. Was. Although yeah, yeah, then yeah, the, guy, the guy, the guy, the guy goes, "I'm Jewish. I'd like you to a tour." It's like, oh no, it's true. I mean, someone who in 2012, the Jewish Labour movement, which in terms of the internal politics of the Labour Party, you have Labour Friends of Israel, which is kind of the more right wing of the mm-hmm. two Jewish uh, uh, ginger groups in the Labour Party, and the Jewish Labour movement, which is very much to its left, uh, met with him and went, "Look, there are a couple of things we'd like you to do," uh, and one of the things he said is, "Look." face it, most most of your people are rich and therefore will not vote for me. Which, I mean, one, actually, if you look at the pattern of ethnic minority voting in Britain, uh, it's actually the, the only community which has gone noticeably more Tory since it became more affluent is actually the Hindu community. And Ken doesn't go around uh, demonising them. And two, again, for obvious reasons, this idea that the Jewish community is rich is in of itself an anti-Semitic trope. Um, so, we so, knew all yeah, these things exactly. about Ken. So if I like, can continue my, my train of thought, that's exactly the point. We knew about Ken. Yeah. It is its entire separate shocking story that when Labour was, was run by moderates, they didn't chuck him out. And by the way, some elements of the left who are appalled by Ken Livingstone's comments today might want to revisit how they felt when Tony Blair tried to stop him standing for Mayor of London. That might have been a rather more moral decision than it was portrayed at the time. But secondly, this is, this is exactly the point. Uh, we knew about Ken Livingstone. Rupert Huck is... Uh, uh, an average new member of the Labour intake. She happened to nominate Jeremy Corbyn, but there are plenty of moderates who did that. And it turns out that she laughs at anti-Semitism. She is the Labour Party now. She is why Labour has ended up in a position where its leader, where it elects a leader who has called Hamas his friends, whatever his uh, terrible post-hoc rationalisations for that, who has called Raid Salah, who is convicted of uh, repeating the blood libel, which is the ancient anti-Semitic troupe that Jews use children's blood to make bread. Jeremy Corbyn called him an honoured citizen when welcoming him to Parliament. He donated money to Paul Eisen, a Holocaust denier. Not just has Labour ended up in the position where he can be elected leader, they end up in the position where he is elected leader. Labour MPs are trying to make it work. Would they have tried to make it work if Labour had somehow ended up in a position where its leader had done the sort of equivalence of that on an Islamophobic plane? No, and rightly so. And I do think there becomes a question. You know, we've had about 15 Labour MPs at the time of podcasting who have called for Ken Livingstone to be suspended. Okay, fine. But there comes a question about what do these people want their epitaph to be? Why are they in politics? Lisa Nandy called for Naz Shah to be suspended long before Jeremy Corbyn actually suspended her after a fashion, right? Lisa Nandy, does, does she want her epitaph to be she spent the Jeremy Corbyn years 
fashioning an energy policy which Labour is never ever was never ever going to be in government to implement? Or does she want her epitaph to be that she stood up to the scourge of due hatred that had taken over the Labour Party? And I know that sounds overwrought and emotional, but I think when she uh, looks in the mirror at the end of her career, she she and the many many other Labour MPs who are not anti-Semitic, far from it, uh, we'll, we'll have to reckon Well, let's that. talk for a minute about somebody who has come out of this well from the Labour Party, which is Sadiq Khan, mm. you know, who has faced a campaign from uh, the people behind Zach Goldsmith, you know, yeah. that has attempted to portray him as a radical, has, I think, dabbled with Islamophobia. But he has always been somebody who's spoken out against anti-Semitism. And he's come out and said, well, hasn't he? Well, I mean, he has been since he became mayor. It's, it, we talked about Ken Livingstone being suspended earlier uh, when he was mayor, and Sadiq Khan uh, opposed that suspension. So that's worth noting. But I must say I have been tremendously impressed, as has much of the Jewish community, by the way. The Jewish Chronicle uh, wrote, I think it was an editorial, saying that Sadiq Khan no, has no. been a better mayoral candidate for the Jewish community than Zach Goldsmith. Um, given Zach Goldsmith's half Jewish, that that's, that says something. Um, so yes, he has been very good, and I think uh, the events of today and the previous days will probably do a lot to hamper the considerable and honest and decent efforts that he's made to rebuild Jew- bridges with the Jewish community. What I don't understand with, and, and Stephen, we've talked about this in the podcast before. You know, Ed Miliband, as a, a Labour leader, was highly critical of Israel's policies. That is a very legitimate thing to do. It is a, a, a very right-wing, very nationalistic state. He never got accused of anti-Semitism. I mean, being from a Jewish family himself, I'm sure it factored into that. But there are... It is one of those things that we've got to this stage now where it's a kind of... I don't know, it's like a... It is a dog whistle. In the same way that people say, oh, you can't say anything about immigration without being called a racist. As a kind of, you can't say anything about Israel without being kind of accused of being anti-Semitic. It's, it's become a kind of crutch on the left hasn't it that actually what we're always talking about here is they're just honestly trying to criticize israel's policies and lots of people are taking that as being a coded message yeah i mean the thing is it's the problem is it's nonsense isn't it i mean you know at one as ed miliband showed but also like the existence of haretz which is effectively the uh, israeli equivalent of salon or slate you know which you know is virulently crit- critical of uh, of uh, benjamin uh, netanyahu i mean you know lisa nandy herself you know who, who did quite rightly come out and say, you know, we can't have people saying things like that in the Labour Party, has described Netanyahu as an obstacle to peace in the Middle East. In my view, she is 100% correct. I mean, the the problem is, you know, like, Israel accounts for about half of the global population of Britain's Jews. When we talk about Britain's anti-Semitism problem, we talk about the fact that in the part of North London where I live, there are now guards on state schools which are majority Jewish. Right, oh, yeah, really? like, I mean, yeah, you yeah, won't like, find a single synagogue or Jewish school in the country yeah. where that isn't the case. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, like that, and that has, you know, very little to do with the the politics of uh, of, of the Likud party. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the problem is, is there are kind of three str- three strains at work in the Labour Party which have led to our present discontents. The first is right is then it is very easy for people to nod along when they say, oh, there's a problem in the culture about uh, racism, anti-Semitism, sexism, and then people get very, very het up the second you go, by the way, you are part of the culture. No one in Britain is not part of a continent which 70 years ago committed a pogrom on an industrialised scale. That, that doesn't go away. It lingers within the culture. I mean, that is why... 
Yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, I think that, it's based on an, a, yeah. a, a, a very this, narrow understanding of, of privilege and the way that the, the left has kind of ended up thinking about what constitutes somebody who is oppressed or who isn't. And I think that the left has a problem both with sexism in that it doesn't really often you hear people who don't really think that women have got any problems certainly not you know middle class women you know women that they might know you, I, I hear this overtone all the time from people on the on the far left and the hard left who i talk to who just don't think that anything bad really happens to to middle class women and i think i think the same thing has happened with 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 jewish communities yes there's a sort of sense you might yes of course you might have had some problems in the past with that whole unpleasant business in the middle of the in the 20th century but we all know now that jews aren't really oppressed now don't you think that's what's what's that's what's oh, driving no, it it's that, like, oh no black people are properly oppressed but actually and it's also, jews don't have it's anything it's also to bound about. into being critical of the united states government which it's, it's fair enough. The United States government has done a lot of things which are suboptimal, to put it mildly. But there is a, a sense that because Israel is a close ally of the United States government, and because there is a widespread view on uh, the left, you know, ranging actually from some fairly, you know, there there are Liz Kendall supporters, you know, in, in the Parliamentary Party who I would say subscribe wholeheartedly to the idea that the United States is primarily a, uh, at best, uh, you know, a vehicle muddy, for evil. Yeah. Yeah. muddying force in global politics and that uh, contributes to part of it and then this sense that the left is righteous exactly as you say then therefore you know it's always very very difficult to look at the moat in your own eye I mean the the striking um, the thing I found striking is we began this week with a lot of right-wingers arguing that the use of the phrase Kenyan ancestry to describe Barack Obama wasn't racist and we have ended the week with those same right-wing commentators uh, saying, why is the Labour Party tone-deaf on anti-Semitism? And the same people in the Labour Party going, this is a problem, going, but it's not anti-Semitic to criticise Israel. And both of them, if you said, do you accept there's a general cultural problem that we're all uh, mainlining anti-Semitic, racist and sexist tropes, would mostly go, yeah, of course I support that. However, very few people are willing to go, and that includes me. And that's the root of the matter. And yeah. you, you drew earlier attention to... The fact that Jeremy Corbyn has not, to my knowledge, ever condemned anti-Semitism without eliding it with all other forms of racism in the same sentence. I know why he does that. It's because he doesn't want to admit that he's part of the problem. He doesn't want to confront why Israel was the subject of almost half of his Morning Star columns, which he's been writing since the 80s. Why that is the sole foreign country, above even America, that has attracted so much of his ire for so many years. I don't know if he has it in him to confront what it is about Israel which so irks him. But uh, I think he and a lot of the Labour Party need to do that. Well, um, as, as Stephen alluded to earlier, we've, we've re-recorded this once. Um, maybe we will have to do that again because events are still fast developing. I just want to ask you, Stephen, first... You know, what's the long... OK, we, we don't know. Very Something else might have happened by, with Ken by the time that we come out. But what's the long-term effect? Has this really put a stain on the Labour Party long-term? Yes. I mean, I think the way you have to look at it is during the election... I was knocking on doors in the yeah you know, when I was doing these vox pops on my my feature on Wales still available online to read, um, and I I was going on this door thinking oh, I haven't talked to very many conservative voters yet, uh, so I picked a door which had um, two Mercedes in the front, uh, you know kind of a, you know it was a, a new house very well done up the guy had clearly done well for himself very well dressed man answers the door he's Asian 
I talk to him about politics. He says, I'm worried about Ed Miliband and the SNP. I, yeah, he knifed his brother. I don't like him. I said, so you're going to vote Tory? And he said, I'll never vote Conservative because of rivers of blood. A speech which was given in the 1970s. Like, the people, well, yeah, at the time when this guy wasn't alive, but he remembered it being something his parents talk about. The consequences of Ken Livingstone talking about how the... Hitler's problems with the Jews only started in 1932, will last into a point into the future sufficiently far off that there is a decentest chance that 1932 will be closer to the present day than the mm. time when the Jewish community in Britain forgives large chunks of the Labour Party. But I'm not sure I agree with you for the reason that Henry outlined earlier, which is that I think that there are far more people who are prepared to give a pass to anti-Semitism than there are to anti-black or Asian racism now. This is, this is the point. I mean, I think it leaves a stain for the Jewish community who might otherwise have been minded to vote Labour. The question is, and I think for some people the bold calculation is, the Jewish community is pretty small. Mm. They don't need their votes. Yeah. They can get away with not ever winning Finchley and Golders Green again. And I think that's really what is happening here. Um, I should probably note, just while we have alluded to events going on. So John Landsman, uh, who is in uh, Jeremy Corbyn's inner circle, uh, the sole director of Momentum, uh, and is Jewish himself, has, has tweeted, uh, a period of silence from Ken Livingston is overdue, especially on anti-Semitism, racism, and Zionism. It's time he left politics altogether. Ken oh, Livingston wow. is on the NEC well done, John slate uh, that John Landsman is, is backing, Momentum is backing, so that's uh, pretty remarkable. Um, but again... Why is John Landsman, to my knowledge, the only member of Momentum to have come out and said that so far? It's because John Landsman's Jewish. Do any non-Jews care? We'll find out in the coming days. Well, thank you for the moment, Stephen and Henry. I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the Pop Culture Podcast from the New Statesman. Seriously. If you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn, this is the podcast for you. You can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And now it's time to go down the line to the lobby with George. Hi, Stephen. Hi, George. So this week, the focus in Westminster has moved briefly away from the EU referendum, which completely dominated last week, um, towards the set of elections coming up. Uh, so next Thursday, we have council elections in England, the Scottish parliamentary election, Welsh Assembly election, uh, London mayoral election, and finally, the one that everyone cares the most about, the police and crime commission elections. And the local elections for Jeremy Corbyn are his first big electoral test since becoming leader. And the prognosis is not good. John Curtis, um, perhaps Britain's most respected pollster, has forecast that Labour will lose 170 councillors based on current polling. Mm -hmm. And that would make it the first opposition to lose seats in a local election in a non-general election year since 1985. Uh, so that would be an unhappy record for, for Corbyn to, to break. So numbers-wise, it, it doesn't look good. But speaking to both allies and foes of Jeremy Corbyn, it's clear that politically he will pass the test uh, because he can't really fail it. Yeah. Um, as I write in my column this week, uh, Labour could lose 300 councillors. It could lose the London mayoral election. It could come third, no fourth in Scotland, and Jeremy Corbyn would be safe. Yeah. Um... 
It is interesting how the mood in the PLP has shifted very sharply from gone in 100 days to gone after the leadership elections to now gone, potentially not even by 2020. Um, what about the other parties? What are the Lib Dems see as a good night for them? Well, they would hope to make some, to make gains and, and, and to show signs of on the ground of, of, of a fight back. I mean, their current poll ratings haven't improved and have maybe even slightly declined since the election. Mm. Uh, the real problem for them at the moment is much of the media and, and much of the electorate, more worryingly, sees them as, as irrelevant. And it is incredibly hard to get coverage when you only have eight MPs. Um, and this really reinforces uh, Labour's predicament because... In 85, when they lost seats, it was largely due to the SDP-Liberal alliance surging. Uh, they're now forecast to lose seats without there being uh, a strong insurgent third party. So UKIP is, is holding and, and maybe even slightly rising as, as the EU um, gains prominence. But it's hardly surging and they have one MP who spends most of his time at odds with, with the leader, yeah. uh, the Lib Dems and irrelevance, and yet Labour s is still not capable of, of landing blows on the Conservatives. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing is, of course, in, uh, in Wales, uh, where UKIP didn't really exist in 2011, and they now get seven, eight seats, um, where Neil Hamilton, weirdly, will return to, uh, to Western Philosophy. What do you think... Um, the effect of, uh, we've talked about elsewhere in the podcast, so I don't know where it is, but the effect of the Ken Livingstone remarks on Labour unity. Um, Sadiq Khan has called for him to go, uh, Chris Bryant, Liz Kendall, so people more from the right Labour Party have called him to go, but also some people from the mi middle and left of the Labour Party, so like Sadiq and Jess Phillips have called for him to go. If What do you think will be the end game of that uh, row? Mm. Well, if, if Ken isn't suspended, then the divisions will endure. Um, party infighting is, is never helpful for a party, particularly not ahead of the elections when you want unity and you want uh, to present uh, a competent face to the electorate. A lot of shadow cabinet members and Labour MPs that I spoke to yesterday feel that what Jeremy Corbyn needs to do is to make uh, a set-piece speech on anti-Semitism of his own accord um, to finally... Uh, sort of put any any doubts uh, to bed, uh, but they question whether he's prepared to do that, and, and if he is, whether he's capable of delivering it in, in the way required. Um, they feel you know, he consistently condemns anti-Semitism, but when he does, he tends to say, and all forms of racism. He appears to them incapable of yeah. condemning anti-Semitism alone and dealing with that issue in in isolation, rather than seeing as, as, as part of a general stance against um, ethnic and racial discrimination. Yeah. Um, so, cheery uh, situation to be in uh, as we head into towards local elections. And uh, we'll be back to discuss the fallout of that next week. Right, um, since we recorded that last session, Ken Livingston has now been suspended from the Labour Party. Uh, so from one uh, racism scandal involving one mayor or, well, one former mayor from one party to another of a different party, my colleague Anoush Shikalian is joining me to talk about Zach Goldsmith, his campaign against Sadiq Khan and all of the uh, various baggage attached to that. So let's get cracking. Anoush, you've written a lot about this. So um, 
for the benefit of our listeners, uh, talk us through what is going on in the London mayoral race. Okay, so very briefly, um, at the end of last year, Zach Goldsmith caused a few headlines by um, one of his leaflets calling uh, Sadiq Khan radical and divisive. Obviously, people thought this was a dog whistle um, trying to sound this dog whistle to voters who might be uncomfortable with the idea of a Muslim mayor. Um, and it's kind of uh, spiralled. There's kind of two strands to this story. It's that Goldsmith campaign and the way it's talking about Sadiq Khan, trying to point him out as a Muslim of Pakistani um, background, but also his leaflets to various parts of London's ethnic communities have been quite uh, reductive in what they assume people's priorities are. So, for example, there were leaflets sent to the Gujarati community talking about uh, protecting their family gold and their businesses. And uh, there were leaflets sent to, you know, the Tamil community saying similar things. Uh, Sikhs were receiving leaflets about and letters about um, Zach Goldsmith's visit to the to the Golden Temple. And um, lots of voters have taken um, offence at this because they think that it's quite crass to be talking about these things that you just assume these groups uh, find important. Yeah. And he's been widely criticised, including by his own side. I mean, I think it's probably worth, before we go any further, acknowledging the fact that, to be frank, and don't write in Sadiq, but Sadiq Khan is neither radical nor extreme. He is firmly on the soggy centre of the Labour Party. The reason why he's saying that is because Sadiq Khan is a Muslim. That That is what Zach Goldsmith is evoking. Exactly. And yeah. and the way that he also pointed out that, Zach Gold, uh, that Sadiq Khan didn't go to... Um, Narendra Modi's visit, when whereas Zach Goldsmith and David Cameron did. Now, can you imagine Zach Goldsmith putting that on leaflets if Tessa Jowell was the uh, Labour mayoral candidate? It would be completely irrelevant. It is simply because Sadiq Khan has Pakistani roots and is Muslim. He's basically trying to point out to London's Indian voters, who he assumes might have a problem with having a Pakistani or Muslim mayor, look, this guy is Muslim. Yeah, of course... The polls all forecast a crushing, I mean, yeah, a, a landslide of biblical proportions uh, for, for Sadiq Khan. You know, we are talking about, you know, kind of a Noah's Ark-style defeat for mm-hmm. for Zach. However, lots of Labour people are nervous. And when you talked to Conservatives about their campaign, they were, they perhaps wouldn't have defended it in a, I think this is very honourable, but they... They think it's working, don't they? Yeah, exactly. I've had a few chats with people working <clears throat> on Zach Goldsmith's campaign about this. And they, they, they double down on his comments. They say, oh, you know, we think they're fine. We think it's fine to call Sadiq Khan a radical because he's called it that himself. But actually, the way that they talk about it is more to do with strategy than to do with um, Zach Goldsmith's in the right and Sadiq Khan is a dangerous man. For example, one of the people that I spoke to was saying, well, you know... It might seem a little bit crass, these mail outs that we've sending, but this is all part of modern campaigning. And I thought that was a really interesting phrase that he used because it sounds very Linton Crosby-esque, like it's not nice, but it seems to be working. And uh, I mean, Labour MPs uh, really do fear it's working. I talked to a senior London MP uh, themselves from an ethnic minority and they said, yeah, I don't think Zach Goldsmith is a fool. I don't think Zach Goldsmith is racist. So why is he fighting a racist campaign? It must be because it's working. And the fear is that people don't want to admit that they're swayed by this in the polls or when they're voting in the polls, they see Labour candidate next to Sadiq. But maybe when they get in the ballot box, they'll see the word Sadiq Khan and all of these messages will have a kind of terrible consequence in the ballot box. Exactly. I was speaking to a Labour advisor who was a candidate last year who um, is, I think she has um, Asian roots and she lives in London, called Uma Cameron. And she was saying, she was describing Zach Goldsmith to me with quite a lot of respect she was saying oh he's a cotton wool Tory he's not like the others you know 
lots of voters um, clearly quite like his moderate stance. And so and and the implication there was that he's such a nice guy. Why would he be saying things like this? And why would he be um, steadfastly sticking to this nasty campaign if there wasn't some kind of kernel of it working? And, and I spoke to her and also I spoke to a few Gujarati voters back in the constituency I used to live in, in Ealing. Um, and they were saying, actually, this kind of thing could work, not with my generation, but with my parents' generation or my grandparents' generation. Yeah. And we know that the elderly are more likely to vote. We know that Sadiq's lead exactly. is among voters who are less inclined to vote uh, in general. So there is that slight nervousness, not least because, I mean, to be frank, the Conservatives are saying if they don't want a Muslim like Sadiq Khan holding elected office, they basically are saying they don't want any Muslim at all ever to hold elected office. Exactly. And also, if this campaign works, then what does that mean for... I mean, what what does it mean for London and what does that mean for modern campaigning in general? Are we allowed to do this kind of campaigning, it seems? Yeah. And I think the chilling thing is, is that the reason why we are even talking about it is that they've done it in a not particularly effective and competent way. And my instinct is it won't work because I think that London is not the city than the Conservatives seem to think it is. But... If they had been clever on it, if they had done it on Facebook where only people who actually were meant to see it had seen it, then we wouldn't be saying, oh, I wonder why they're so smug. Oh, we'd be going, oh, isn't Zach Goldsmith a lovely One Nation conservative? And I find it kind of chilling to think, and maybe even in 2020, uh, political ta- targeting will be sufficiently advanced and we just won't know that this is what's going on underneath the, the iceberg. Yeah, exactly. Part of the reason why everyone has even heard of this is because people have been tweeting the leaflets that they've taken pictures of on their phones. So we haven't seen it in that Facebook um, arena. But what I've heard other Labour people saying is that they think Zach Goldsmith might not be thinking that he's going to win by this campaign, but this campaign is useful for the Tories in 2020 because it's linking um, Jeremy Corbyn to uh, Sadiq Khan using this they've shared a platform with extremists line which is a similar kind of fear campaign that the Tories ran last election but with the SNP instead well this has been a cheerful <laughs> week on the podcast don't worry next week we'll be discussing uh, Captain America's Civil War and Batman versus Superman so that will be a nice uh, uplift as well as hearing a very very tired Stephen Bush uh, come off hours of live blogging uh, from the local election so we'll be back next Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And uh, welcome back to You Ask Us. The clue is in the title. You ask us a question, we try to answer it. And uh, this week's question, which I'm going to have to kind of cut down for reasons of pith, is from Amanda Scott, who's asked, Does is TTIP a, a, a reason to vote leave? Obviously, Obama has said we'll be back of the queue for any TTIP-style deal, which, from her perspective, sounds like quite a good deal. So I uh, went on an odyssey this week of discovering what TTIP actually is, having seen it as an acronym and, and vaguely been sort of knew that I should be kind of against it or at least worried about it. I talked to War on Want and the National Health Action Party, and then I also talked to the Adam Smith Institute, the libertarian think tank, who are 
unsurprisingly more in favour of it than the others. So basically, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership is will be the biggest trade deal in the world. It will codify lots of things that have happened informally already um, between America and the EU. The campaigners' concern about it, I think Alan Beatty, the FT, had this idea that it said, you know, it will shred state healthcare systems and force American frankenfoods down our throats. That's that is a you know, it's a, that's a slight simplification of the objections, but not you know, a, a good precy, I think, of them. So the, the idea is that there are a couple of things that are really worrying about it. There's a sort of sec- semi-secret tribunal system which is codified in it. In the which, ISDS. Except it's not called that anymore because oh. that would be too, that would be too simple. Um, in which companies can sue governments essentially for restricting their ability to do business. So there's this thing called indirect expropriation, which is supposed to be so a kind of corrupt kleptocrat can't just seize things off people, basically, mm-hmm. by various means. But the worry is that things like, for example, um, you know, Obama cancelling the Keystone Pipeline, for example, well, that's a bit sad to the company that was trying to make the Keystone Pipeline. Do they have a case for damages? That's what they want to know. Or you might say that, you know, if you have, if you cancelled a big train contract, for example, or you decided to renationalise the railways, in you know in yeah. in various ways would companies not only be able to sue for money they'd already invested but for the loss of future profits mm-hmm. um so that's kind of an interesting thing the second thing is whether or not in the US and the EU have very different food safety standards uh, for anyone who's ever been to a supermarket in the US will know that there is some weird weird stuff and they feed some weird stuff to cattle and things like that so Things like uh, bans, 40% of grain from the US can't be uh, imported to the EU because it's got banned pesticides in it. Well, that's terrifying. Yeah, well, and but also there are some other things I mean, as well. I'm mainly talking about eating in the United States. Yeah. And I've ever been to the United States. Although if a listener would like to pay for me to go. Um, it's too late for me. I've eaten in the United States. Okay. It's all over. Um, and beef as well. I've eaten beef. Um, but also, you, you know, th- th- it goes the other way as well. The Americans are always slightly horrified by the concept of unpasteurized cheese. Like, why are you eating this cheese that's swimming in bacteria? Um, so that those kind of things, the worry is that all these sort of safety legislation that's been built up by the EU size of battery chicken cages that kind of thing would that all be eroded as we essentially equalize with the us um and kind of more and more take on their standards in terms of the nhs it's quite hard to unpick exactly what it is when i spoke to the national health action party you know they make the case that they, i mean they believe the creation of the internal market has already started that that process and it's kind of this would just really kind of give it a turbo boost but it's quite hard to to point to any one thing that would sort of happen on day one of ttip i think the most interesting thing to note is it's so so sam bowman who is uh, from the adam smith institute as i say this right-wing think tank kind of said that the trouble is that the secrecy with which it's been conducted and it has been conducted in secrecy people are only MEPs are allowed to see it but they they have to go into a special room and leave their phone behind and they're only allowed a certain amount of time and they can only you know they haven't published the full communiques that level so of secrecy so what we're seeing is only the t-tip e- of the item <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> oh, but yeah, but, but essentially his argument is that, that that level of secrecy has made it look a lot more sinister than it is. W- what we know about the EU is it's not deregulation crazy. And actually, Warren wants, say, one of the things that the, the US want financial regulations exempted from, because actually because of the Dodd-Frank Act, mm. they're ahead of, of Europe in, in, in kind of dealing with bad banks. And, you know, he had this great quote, uh, this is Sam, saying, you know, there doesn't... It, it, it looks like a sort of, you know, the, because of the secrecies, people are trying to make out it's kind of a conspiracy theory between the EU and big business to kind of deregulate everything. And I wish that were true. 
Um, because, you know, he's a libertarian. That's why he, he does want fewer barriers yeah. to trade. So, TTIP, yeah, it's difficult. It looks quite... See, it looks quite... If you're a kind of conspiracy aficionado, it, it, you can, there are lots of things in it you can see in a very dodgy light. The most interesting thing that came across is lots of people just don't think it's going to happen. It seems to be that if Obama's presidency runs out the clock, it's then quite unlikely to kind of get anywhere. And right, lots... every every European state has to vote it through at some yeah. point. The Senate and Congress have to vote it through, which is very much not a slam dunk. The yeah. assumption is that the next Senate will be more anti-free trade than uh, this one. I mean, I guess, obviously, you're much more across it than I am, but it, it feels slightly strange to me, the argument it would be a good way to get out of... Um, trying to emulate American capitalism at its worst would be to leave the EU and, and leave all the leave, social protections and instead leave it to the the wisdoms of David Cameron or in fact the reality is whatever Brexit mad well I, yeah I just don't think Tory that if you think flipped on us afterwards yes exactly if um, you think that a, a post-Brexit Boris Johnson prime ministership is not going to be massively concerned about making battery chicken cages larger or what you know acid washing of meat or um, making sure that there's no more private entry into you know and uh, hospitals and 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 work in the in the national health service. I think that realistically, if those are the things that you care about, the e staying inside the EU is is more your bag. Although I can see that there are obvious objections to TTIP, mm. and that is TTIP in a nutshell. been listening to the new statesman podcast presented by me helen lewis with stephen bush our producer is india bork and our music is devil with the devil by the underscore orchestra licensed under creative commons you can find us on itunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast mm-hmm.